touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks, and you guys know I love tech. And if you've listened to the last two episodes, then you are aware that we've been talking about the company Xerox, which is more than 100 years old. It was founded in 1906. And originally, I thought it was going to be a two-parter. I was certain that's as long as it was going to need to be, because I thought even though there's a lot of stuff that Xerox has contributed to technology, I could probably sum it up in two parts. But the interesting origin of Xbox ended up taking uh, Xbox Xerox took up a lot of time and the Xerox origin having so little to do with what Xerox does today. I mean, it was about photographic paper uh, and if it, it would it would not even evolve into photocopiers until decades after its founding. But it was really interesting to hear about the different values that were instilled as part of the corporate uh, character of Xerox. Then all that stuff about the Palo Alto Research Center or Xerox Park was also incredibly fascinating. I mean, Xerox Park is where a lot of development happened on things that are now standard in personal computers. But at the time, it was all uh, very much cutting edge technology. I mean, Park started in 1970 and they started working on things like graphic user interfaces, computer mouse, bitmapped icons, Uh, Lots of stuff that would find its way into standard computer use more than a decade later was happening at Xerox at the time. And finally, as I was looking into more recent years at Xerox, I realized I couldn't just summarize what had happened. Uh, If I did, it would be short shrift. We'd be going bullet points. And that's not how I like to do this show. So I decided I needed to go into more detail. So that's where we are now at the thrilling conclusion of the Xerox story. So. So far, anyway, I mean, we got to mention that's not really the conclusion. The company does still exist, although it has gone through some pretty major changes fairly recently. So let's jump back into the main company of Xerox. In our last episode, we switched to focus on the Palo Alto Research Center once it was founded in 1970. But what was going on back at Xerox Prime during that same time? Well, in the early 1970s, everything was going pretty well over at Xerox. Uh, They had created the most profitable product of all time with the 914 copier. Remember, it was called the 914 because those were the dimensions of paper it could accept. It could accept up to 9 inches by 14 inches. And uh, this was a photocopier that could make copies much faster than alternative methods. It also was less messy than using something like carbon copies and a mimeograph machine. The company also held patents on the various technologies that went into photocopiers. So it gave them an effective monopoly on their specific approach. You know, if you patent a technology, no one else is allowed to create a technology that works that same way unless they first pay you a licensing fee. If you agree to license it, then sure, they can do it. But otherwise, you have exclusive rights to that technology until the patent expires, which is a little bit more than a decade. Well, the profit margin on those big enterprise machines, enterprise being that they were selling these to companies, right? They were not selling 914 copiers to the average consumer. They were selling them to big offices. The profit margin was super high, like in the 70% range. 70% of the money 
was pure profit. That means that they were able to sell the machines for 70% more than what it costs for them to build them. And that's an incredible profit margin for any kind of technology. And uh, that just means that they were really expensive machines and people were willing to pay for them because of the level of convenience they offered. But as Joe Wilson, who was one of the early leaders of Xerox, might have said, sitting back and relying on past innovations can only be effective for so long. The patents on Xerox's technology were close to expiring, so pretty soon anyone with the means could use those same approaches to make similar technologies. And that 70% profit margin, while it was great for Xerox right there at the moment, meant that other companies would have a chance to come in and cut prices. Maybe they're looking for a profit margin that's a lot more modest, and they could end up selling their copiers for far less than Xerox was and undercut the competition. In 1971, Joe Wilson passed away. Now, I mentioned that in the previous episode, so I'm not going to dwell on it here, but his passing was marked by public displays of respect across Rochester, New York, where he grew up, where he lived most of his life, and also within Xerox itself. Archie McArdle became the president of Xerox, while C. Peter McCullough remained the CEO. You remember McCullough took over for, uh, for Wilson. The mid-70s started to get a little more challenging for Xerox. First of all, you had other companies like Canon and various copier companies in Japan entering the marketplace with competing products. Xerox still made up the majority of copiers in the marketplace. They were effectively a monopoly for, the, for several years. But they soon had to contend with these newcomers. Later still, IBM would get into the copier business, which was also a little bit foreboding to Xerox. And a few others also started to kind of dip their toe into it. Meanwhile, companies like HP were working on technologies that would bring them into competition with Xerox in ways the copier company couldn't anticipate at the time, like in inkjet printing. Inkjet printing, while it's not the same thing as photocopying, did allow people to make copies of stuff by printing extra copies as opposed to printing one copy and then taking that to the photocopier to make more copies. Uh, HP took some of the need away from offices from having these giant photocopiers. So it was a level of competition that Xerox had not anticipated. Xerox began to see that incredible domination in the market start to lose ground. In fact, it began to lose ground pretty dramatically over the next several years. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned that Xerox Park was hard at work on several innovations, one of the biggest being the Alto. Now, this could have been the first personal computer on the market. The Xerox Alto could have been the ubiquitous early personal computer. It could have been there instead of the Apple II. But uh, that just didn't work out. And why? Well, the reasons are a little complicated. First of all, Xerox Alto was years ahead of other products like the Apple II because it actually did have a graphic user interface. It was essentially a Windows-style machine, though Microsoft Windows did not exist yet. But it was that same sort of user interface that Microsoft Windows would be. Now, the fact that Xerox didn't see the opportunity in consumer personal computers led a lot of people after the fact to say that they really were lacking foresight and initiative and that they weren't embracing that spirit of innovation the way Xerox had earlier in its, in its existence. That's a lot easier to say in hindsight. Uh, at the time, it might have seemed weird to go into a 
consumer technology, which by definition tends to have much lower profit margins than doing these business-to-business deals, which had made the company bukus of monies. Xerox ended up creating their first color copier, the Xerox 6500, around this time. So there was some still some innovation going on in their main business. And in 1974, Xerox opened a new facility in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. And I know, I know Canadians. I know I mispronounced it. I I realize that I, I feel shame, a deep sense of shame and despair, that I'm just a simple man reading notes off my computer screen. So So give me some slack. This was the Xerox Research Center of Canada, also known as the XRCC. Initially, the purpose of this research facility was to engineer new chemical processes and products for use in Xerox's businesses. Today, the XRCC bills itself as, quote, Canada's leading materials research center and home to a world-class team of scientists and engineers with broad expertise in materials chemistry, formulation design, prototyping, testing, and chemical process engineering, end quote. They work both with Xerox and external customers, which typically would be other big companies. Now, in 1975, Xerox agreed to license copier patents to other companies, which seems really big of them, right? Like they were, they had all these, these different patents that kept them in this effective monopoly. Seems really generous to agree to extend licenses to various companies, you know, in in exchange for a fee. Seems really nice. Well, it wasn't, Uh, out of the kindness of Xerox executives' hearts, Xerox had actually become the target for an antitrust lawsuit. And the government was essentially demanding that the company offer up licensing agreements for their patents. So this was kind of the company's way of soothing things over. Within a short amount of time, the move did exactly what the people at Xerox were afraid would happen. It allowed competitors to leverage Xerox's technologies and sell copiers for much lower prices. Xerox's near 100% market share would drop below 20% in just a couple of years. That's dramatic when you go from 100% market domination to less than 20% of the market. In some cases, I've seen estimates between 13 and 14%. That's crazy. It is, however, something that we've seen in other technologies like smartphone operating systems. iOS dominated shortly for a while, and then Android caught up, and then now Android dominates, just by sheer numbers. 1975 was also the year that Xerox stopped trying to make mainframe-style computers. They got out of that business. They had bought into it a few years earlier, and it turned out they just could not make that business work. 1975 was also the year Xerox launched an incredibly popular advertising campaign. This was called the Brother Dominic campaign. It featured a monk creating an illustrated manuscript by hand. So he's writing out in calligraphy this manuscript, only to be told by his superiors that they need hundreds more copies. So the monk takes his illustrated page to the copy center in the monastery, since we all know that monasteries have these, right? And he then goes and makes 500 copies using a big Xerox machine. And when he returns to his superiors, shortly after he was asked to make the copies in the first place, They look at the amount of work he has accomplished so quickly and reply, it's a miracle. Now, this campaign would include several more variations on this theme and would make a return just a couple of years ago with an updated technology found in Xerox document centers. So it was a very popular award-winning ad campaign. 
And uh, again, not just a couple of years ago, they did an update that was kind of cute about how you could use Xerox technologies to do things like translate documents. It could have automatic detection of language and then translate it into other languages and print it in those other languages, which is a pretty cool thing, actually. It seems kind of magical to me. I guess it is a miracle. In 1976, Kodak, remember, that was Xerox's old competitor from the old, old days when it was the Haloid Corporation. Kodak was the big boy in town and Haloid was the teeny tiny little competitor. Well, now Kodak switches the, the, the scales and becomes the smaller competitor in the copier game. That added more pressure onto Xerox. This was also the last year that Xerox sold a 914 copier. That would be 1976. They phased it out of sales from that point forward, although they did still provide field service for 914 copiers that had already been sold to customers. Xerox made a move in 1979 to purchase Western Union International. That ended up being a failed experiment. The company was trying to create a telecommunications network. They were really looking to diversify beyond photocopying. So they were, they were definitely looking at ways that they could branch out so they weren't 100% dependent upon a business that was getting siphoned away from them. But this telecommunications network experiment was a failure. And in 1982, Xerox would sell off Western Union International to MCI, and they took a loss on that sale. So it was a, an expensive lesson to learn. In 1980, Xerox formed an official environment, health, and safety organization and became one of the first big American companies to do so. The purpose of this group is to design and implement environmental and sustainability programs at Xerox. By 1981, Xerox had started to introduce the Star Computer Workstation, which was technically the first consumer computer to feature a mouse and WYSIWYG software. WYSIWYG, in case you don't remember, stands for what you see is what you get. So you can actually edit within the framework of whatever document you're using, and it looks exactly the way it should when you print it or produce it. This is standard today, but back, back then, it was not standard. The thing that you were looking at on a screen often had very little relationship with whatever it would print out on a piece of paper. Uh, but this Star Computer Workstation was not compatible with other systems and was a bit underpowered, all things considered, and ultimately it languished in the market. Apple computers would pass it by easily, even though they didn't have all the bells and whistles that the... Uh, Star Computer Workstation did back in 1981. Apple would catch up by 84 when they started to incorporate the Mac operating system and had their Windows-based uh, user interface incorporated in that. But at the time, uh, Xerox's computer was was pretty advanced from a software perspective. Hardware, it was kind of lacking. In 1982, McCullough stepped down as the CEO and David Cairns became CEO of Xerox. And one thing Cairns did was to guide Xerox into some acquisitions to expand the company into financial services, including insurance. Eventually, this would become a huge burden to the company as it found itself financially obligated to resolve billions of dollars in insurance liabilities. So it became kind of an albatross around the metaphorical neck of Xerox. At this point, the revenues of the company were $8.5 billion. Xerox would continue to experiment with new products, including new copiers that had microcomputers incorporated directly into the product. That, of course, has continued up to present day. 
And it also had a low bandwidth Ethernet as a communications interface built into these new copiers, which is kind of cool. Xerox also introduced a fax machine in 1983 that could be linked by network to other office equipment. So again, they were producing some stuff that was ahead of the curve. Uh, but around this time, Xerox also pioneered a practice that you might not be aware of. It's kind of creepy. So laser printing was becoming more commonplace in the early 1980s. And that included the capability to print in full color with certain types of printers. One concern that arose from this development of technology was the possibility of using that kind of printer to produce counterfeit documents and currency. If you could make it look convincing enough, you might be able to have a, a pretty convincing counterfeit and pass it off as the real thing. Now, Xerox determined that one way to protect against this, or at least track instances so that you could find their points of origin, would be to include some sort of encoding strategy so that the printers being used would print a tracking information directly onto the paper and do it in such a way that it's not obvious. And thus, tiny yellow dots began to find their way into print jobs. Now, those yellow dots, which are easiest to see if you shine a blue LED light on the paper, encode specific information onto the paper itself. That information includes the serial number of the, the printer, the date of printing, and more, uh, or the copier as well. So the dots are yellow, and paper is typically white, and that means you have a very low contrast between the toner and the paper. That makes it really tricky to spot. And the dots are actually pretty tiny, so it's likely you would not notice them without a magnifying glass and a blue light. But if you wanted, you could shine a blue light on a piece of paper that had gone through a Xerox printer or copier. You could use some magnifying glass. You could find these dots, and you could track any document back to the printer that produced it. You'd even know when the print job took place. The date would be included in that information. And that sort of information could come in particularly handy during a case involving counterfeits. But it might creep you out to know that your printouts have been including information about you, or at least your printer, all the way up to this point. This, by the way, is standard practice. You can find lots of printers that will include stuff at a very tiny, unnoticeable level, at least unnoticeable to the naked eye. But they leave traces that make it much easier to figure where did that piece of paper come from, who printed it, including if it has a serial number and the serial number is registered to somebody, it makes it much easier to track down the origin of that piece of paper, uh, at least the printout, not the paper itself. So it's kind of creepy in a way. It's also potentially useful. Now, law enforcement, for their part, say that they don't really use this unless they're looking into counterfeits. They're not necessarily taking every sheet of paper that has been printed and then looking for these dots and then tracking it back to the original printer for further investigation. But still kind of interesting, something I was not aware of before I started doing the research for this podcast. And we've got a lot more to say about Xerox to wrap up this story. But before I get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1986, years before the World Wide Web would debut, Xerox made a very forward-thinking move. The company registered a top-level domain, www.xerox.com. This was the seventh top-level domain to be registered with the United States Department of Defense ever. So 
when you look at the top level domains, Xerox was the seventh one. And if you're wondering about that last statement about the Department of Defense, you need to listen up on the old ARPANET podcast episodes I did. The Department of Defense's Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, which would eventually evolve into DARPA, was responsible for designing the foundation for what would become the Internet. So all the protocols, uh, they really got their start both in ARPANET and over at Xerox Park. Xerox Park, they did a lot of work that would end up being incorporated into the fundamental design of the Internet. Before the Department of Defense essentially backed away from being the caretaker of the Internet, all registration ultimately went to the Department of Defense. So think about that. If you wanted to register a top-level domain, you had to send that information to the Department of Defense. That's not intimidating at all. But Xerox got in early, well before any domain squatters could come along and mess things up. Xerox produced its two millionth copier in 1988. The company was really starting to face fierce competition in the space at this point. Xerox's main concentration remained in the enterprise business. Uh, they kept on focusing on those big corporate clients as opposed to trying to really break into the consumer marketplace. In 1990, Xerox introduced DocuTech. That's a product that allowed for scanning, editing, filing, and printing jobs all from one product. So kind of like a, a photocopier on steroids, right? It's the machine that just can do anything. The Swiss Army photocopier. That's also the year that Paul Allaire would become the Xerox CEO. Now, Allaire had been with the company since 1966, and it would be 1990 when he becomes CEO of the company. Uh, his first moves as CEO were to divest Xerox of several of the financial services departments the company had formed in an effort to diversify, like those insurance companies I was talking about. Uh, the revenue of the company at that point was $13.6 billion. Xerox Park, meanwhile, created something kind of cool. It was called Lambda Moo, which you might think that means that Xerox was genetically producing Greek yogurt or something, but that's not what was going on. At least not that I know of anyway. Maybe they were doing that too, but that's not what Lambda Moo was. Lambda Moo was an early multi-user object-oriented online environment. Uh, Moo stands for multi-user object-oriented or sometimes mud object-oriented. MUD, by the way, stands for multi-user dungeon. So it all gets very recursive. Think of it as a text-based environment that allows people to log into it remotely and interact with one another. Uh, it's a fancy type of chat room that has some added capabilities, like little spaces that you could define as channels or rooms of their own, as well as programmed objects within it that can sometimes produce effects based upon commands you would type in. But it's all text-based. 1990 was also when Xerox introduced the DocuTech production publisher, the first in its DocuTech series of products. Uh, it could make copies, manipulate documents, capture images, and more. Xerox was adding new features and development from the Park team in order to differentiate its products from all the copiers that were coming out from competing companies. So while other companies were selling copiers at lower cost, Xerox started producing some that had added features that you could not find in the competitors' products. In 1993, Severe Tire Damage performs a live streaming show at Xerox Park using the multicast backbone to send the performance over the internet. I actually covered this in an episode of Tech Stuff not too long ago. I cannot for the life of me remember what the topic was, but I remember talking about Severe Tire Damage doing their live cast. 
And I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the fact that I've gotten to talk about severe tire damage twice in the same few months. Uh, it always seems like it was like a couple of weeks ago, but I know it was longer than that. In 1994, Xerox underwent a little rebranding. The company would do this several times over the next couple of decades. They changed their corporate symbol from blue to red. It had been a blue Xerox. Now it was red. And the symbol itself was turned to a partially digitized X. The company also began to refer to itself as the document company dash Xerox. In 1996, Kodak got out of the copier business, so that helped a little bit. Xerox revenue hit $17.4 billion. And in 1997, Xerox released the Document Center digital copier products. On June 30th of 1997, G. Richard Tommen left IBM to join Xerox. Now, Tommen was tapped to become the successor to Paul Allaire and would become president and COO in 1997. This marked the first time someone from outside Xerox assumed the role of president. On April 1st, 1999, he would be named CEO, and Allaire would resign from being CEO. Remember, Xerox had this policy that when you hit 60, it was time for you to resign as CEO. It didn't matter what kind of job you were doing. That was the tradition that had been established. So if you hit 60, it was time for you to get out. Now, Allaire would step down as CEO, but he remained the chairman of the board of directors. You might think April 1st is a pretty tough day to get named to any position. And in this case, you're absolutely right, because it ended up being a not-so-funny joke on Tommen. Within 13 months of assuming the role of CEO, he would be relieved of duty. Specifically, he would get the message from Allaire that the board wanted Tommen to resign from his position or be forcibly removed from it. In fact, some of the board members said either he goes or we go, as in members of the board were threatening to resign unless Tommen was taken out of the office. So what the heck was happening? Well, first of all, to go back to 1997 when Tommen became the president and COO, that was a real tough year for Xerox. The leadership decided that they needed to do a massive reorganization and reprioritization which directly translated into cutting jobs in 1998 to the tune of 9,000 positions. That represented about 10% of Xerox's workforce. So just imagine going to work and seeing that one out of every 10 of your coworkers is gone. That did not help at all that Tommen was coming into this position and also that Tommen was coming in from outside Xerox rather than rising up in the ranks. He didn't have the relationships that other Xerox executives had formed within the company. Allaire, who stayed on the board, was kind of the opposite. He had been around since 1966. And Tommen encountered resistance when he went about to make changes. For one thing, he found it difficult to convince the board to hire the management team that he felt was necessary for him to get all the stuff he wanted done, done. He was saying, well, I, I need a management team, but the board's blocking me on these moves. Now, Allaire and several career Xerox uh, employees felt that Tommen was really trying to change too much too quickly at the company and that he wasn't taking the time to form the right relationships at work. Tommen, for his part, was frustrated at running into resistance and at the thought of having to behave in a way that wasn't aligned with his leadership style. He also said later that he should have insisted Allaire step down from Xerox rather than stay on as chairman. According to Tommen, he and Allaire had reached an agreement by which Allaire could attend top management meetings, but only if he remained quiet. 
So Allaire did attend those meetings and he did remain quiet. He didn't speak at them unless uh, at all, but, but his presence alone was undermining Tommen's authority, or at least seemed to at any rate, with top-level executives at Xerox often looking at Allaire in response to questions rather than to Tommen, who was the one who was actually supposedly leading the company. One month after Tommen joined Xerox, the company stock price hit a, a historic high of nearly $64 per share. In the third quarter of 1999, the company posted an 11% drop in income and investors sold off tons of shares, cutting the value of the company by nearly 25%. Imagine the value of your company goes down an entire quarter. It's, you know, one-fourth of the value of your company is gone. It was very sobering. By 2001, the price of the stock dropped down to $7 per share. And the amount of money that that represented collectively, if you multiplied all the different shares and you looked at the price, meant that the company lost $38 billion. There was actually talk for a while of the possibility that Xerox might enter, enter Chapter 11 bankruptcy. As it turned out, that didn't become necessary, but it was flirting with that possibility for a while. Now, part of the loss was due to Xerox's international operations. The company had significant holdings in Brazil, and Brazil was suffering a, from a catastrophic economic crisis in 1999 and 2000. Uh, and due to Brazil's weak currency, it led to Xerox losing about a billion dollars of its net worth. Some people said that it was like Xerox was playing a game in, in, uh, in converting currency from one form to the other, and it was losing Around the same time, Xerox fired 13 employees at its Mexican subsidiary on the grounds that they had allegedly cooked the books. According to Xerox, those employees conspired to make it seem as if the subsidiary's performance was far better than what it really was. So there was a lot of tension going on inside Xerox at this time. Tommen was essentially forced to step down and Anne M. Mulcahy, who had been with Xerox for 24 years, was promoted to president and chief operating officer. She stated that Xerox had an, quote, unsustainable business model, end quote, on an analyst call. But then she did her best to backtrack after that and say that wasn't really what she meant. But it caused a lot of stir that she said that Xerox's business model was unsustainable. Mulcahy would lead the company to turn it around financially, so she actually was able to maneuver Xerox into making a profit again. By 2002, that was the case. Xerox was making a profit, and Mulcahy would be both CEO and the chairman of the board of Xerox. 2002 was also the year that Park spun off as a wholly owned Xerox research company. It was no longer its own division within Xerox. In 2004, 10 years after Xerox rebranded itself as the document company, Dash Xerox, the company had another rebranding. It went back to being just Xerox in its corporate signature so that that X disappeared and the new logo was just the word Xerox, but in all uppercase letters. Xerox had a really big year in 2006. That had been 100 years since the company's founding, so it was their centennial. Xerox also acquired a company called XMPy, which was a variable information software company. And you might wonder what that means. I did. I had no idea what a variable information software company did. So I went to XMPy's webpage and I read this. Here's a direct quote. 
XMPy, the leading provider of software for cross-media variable data one-to-one marketing, offers solutions to help businesses create and manage highly effective direct marketing and cross-media campaigns. So, I guess it's a marketing company. By the way, this that that isn't very good. That's not that's not a very good mission statement. It's not written very well. I mean, first of all, it repeats the word cross-media. You get cross-media twice in one sentence. That's Basic writing 101, you you don't use the same term twice. And it includes both the phrases one-to-one marketing and direct marketing in that same sentence, which are essentially the same thing. But hey, I'm just a writer. What do I know? Mostly I'm just giving marketing companies a hard time since I find that they, like consultants, frequently obfuscate what they really mean with fancy language. And I just used obfuscate, unironically. In 2007, Ursula M. Burns would become the president of Xerox. Burns had actually started at Xerox in 1980 as a mechanical engineering summer intern. She went from being an intern in 1980 all the way to becoming president of the company in 2007. Now, that is a Xerox story that was more in line with the corporate culture. Her rise in the company was was very much in line with those traditional values, and people are often promoted within the company at Xerox as opposed to being uh, brought in from outside. And we'll talk a lot more about what Ursula M. Burns did in her tenure as president and later CEO of Xerox. But before we do that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Just four years after they changed up the corporate signature, Xerox decided to do it again. This new version was still all in red. It was still the name Xerox, but now it was on lowercase instead of uppercase. And they also included a new image, a spherical red symbol with lines forming an X on it. Mulcahy led the company until 2009, and that's when Ursula Burns would step in as CEO. She became the first African-American woman to lead a company the scale of Xerox. That same year, Xerox announced its intent to acquire a company called Affiliated Computer Services. So that's 2009. Keep that in mind. This deal was massive. It's about $6.4 billion in both cash and stocks. The acquisition became official in February 2010. And Xerox would later sell off part of affiliated computer services, namely the IT outsourcing business, to Atos for more than $1 billion. But they held on to the rest of it. So they split off like a division of this company they acquired and sold it off because it was not it was not progressing as quickly as some of the other business units. And they didn't want to divide their attention too much. Now, the following years were pretty tough ones for the company. In January 2016, Xerox issued a press release announcing that the company would split into two entities. Now, this was largely because Carl Icahn, one of the major investors in Xerox, had been urging Xerox to split into two publicly traded companies. One would become the document management business and would retain the name Xerox. The second business, which focused on business services and was mostly the businesses Xerox acquired when it bought affiliated computer services back in 2009, became known as Conduent. Ursula Burns would step down as CEO after the split happened, although she remained chairman of Xerox. Jeff Jacobson would join Xerox to become the new CEO. Or rather, he would become the new CEO. He was already part of Xerox. He was a former lawyer who joined Xerox in 2012 at the officer level. So it's not like he worked his way up from the 
lowest levels to executive. He came in as an officer. He became the chief operating officer of Xerox Technology in 2014, so just two years after joining the company. And then two years after that, he became the CEO. Xerox is still very much in business. In 2017, the company announced a massive production launch of 29 new products, the biggest in its history. The company has focused more on network document management, including solutions that allow you to send print jobs for mobile devices and massive document centers. Also, I should point out that there's still a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen with Xerox over the next few months. There's some worry that there will be a lot of cost-cutting measures, which often result in people losing their jobs. There are entire towns that are really worried about what could happen in the future because Xerox is the major employer at those uh, those towns. And in some cases, you're talking about people who are now working for a totally different company in Conduent. So there's a lot of uncertainty uh, at the time being. And before I conclude this series about Xerox, I need to talk a little bit about this idea of genericized trademarks. So a trademark is a type of design, like a logo or a representation of a provider of goods and services, that sets it apart from others in that same field. A trademark indicates that a particular product or asset belongs to a specific company that is an official version of that asset. It means consumers know from whom their products originated. Uh, you can license trademarks to others if you want to. And let's say, for example, you create a popular character on a television show aimed at children. It's a puppet of some sort. And you've trademarked the image of that puppet. That puppet represents your work. You've trademarked it so other people can't just go out and make a copy of it, at least not without becoming um, liable for a terrible lawsuit. And you might have a toy manufacturing company beating down your door to partner with you in order to produce toy versions of this trademarked character. You could choose to license the trademark character designed to that company and produce tons of toys and make wheelbarrows full of money. Lots of companies do this. But one thing that you have to do with a trademark is defend it. So if someone else starts selling toys of your beloved character and you do nothing to stop them, as in you don't sue the pants off of them, then your trademark is actually in danger. If a court finds that you had the opportunity to defend a trademark, but you didn't, they might say, well, your trademark's not valid because you didn't actually defend it. So this is different from a copyright, which just stays there, and you can sue anybody who infringes upon your copyright anytime during the duration of the copyright's uh, legitimacy, which is a pretty long time in the United States, thanks to companies like Disney. Trademark is a little different. You have to be very um, aggressive in defending your trademark. Again, if you look at Disney, you've probably heard stories about the company telling, say, a school that it had to take down a mural that had Disney characters on it because they were unlicensed versions of those characters. And while you might say, well, where's the harm in a small school putting up a mural of Disney characters? From Disney's perspective, the harm is that if they do not go forward and try to prevent people from using their trademarked intellectual property without uh, without permission, then they lose they may lose the the trademark protection in the first place. So they tend to be a little overzealous in protecting in order to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, if your trademark becomes invalid, you have no real legal protection to your expression and anyone can jump on it, potentially confusing the market as a result. You could always try and take someone to court, but 
it depends on again if you haven't been very good about defending your trademark it it's not it's not great news for you from the court's perspective one thing you definitely do not want is a genericized trademark now that's a brand name that becomes so synonymous with a type of product or service that people just use it for any instance of that product or service even if it came from another company's products which can obviously devalue the trademarked intellectual property so if you were to say i'm going to go xerox this document instead of i'm going to photocopy this document or scan this document or whatever you're using xerox's trademark name in a way that's more generic and you might be using a copying machine that isn't even made by Xerox, for crying out loud. You could say, well, I need to go Xerox this, and you're using a Canon copier. Xerox has actually run awareness campaigns asking people not to use the word Xerox in this way. The company tried to appeal to the sympathy of the masses in these pieces, which are a little funny to read, uh, something that was not universally accepted as a serious message among all readers. After all, I mean, what does the average person care if a billion-dollar company name becomes synonymous with the technology that, at one time, that same company had a monopoly over, right? Once upon a time, you could probably call it Xeroxing because Xerox was more or less the only game in town. And if there's no one competing, then there's not really much danger of the trademark being infringed upon. Now, officially, Xerox is not a generic trademark. It's not recognized as a generic trademark. Unlike some other products, like aspirin is a generic trademark now. Uh, escalators, linoleum, all of those are generic trademarks. But Xerox is in a class of protected trademarks that are still sometimes used in generic fashion. So a couple of other examples in that category would be Kleenex or Band-Aid. So these are all things that are technically protected trademarks, but people use them pretty casually, whether or not they're talking about the specific products or services or they're just talking about something similar that, you know, out of convenience sake, we use a single brand name. Band-Aid, I think, is really a big one. Kleenex, too, really. I mean, I don't know many people who say, hey, could you pass me a facial tissue? Or I would very much need an adhesive bandage to cover this gaping wound that has opened up on my hand. Ramsey, that's a hint. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually, it's all right. I've, I've, I've got a, I got a, I got an owie on my thumb, but it's okay at the moment. No, I don't, I don't need a facial tissue for my owie, Ramsey. Ramsey's trying to be helpful, but he's handing me, wait, that's actually, that's actually puffs. So that's not Kleenex. Uh, some sellotape, also sellotape, by the way, also used to be a, an actual uh, uh, brand name, but now is a, a genericized trademark, as I recall. So I just wanted to take time to address that because it's one of those things people often think about when they hear the term Xerox or, or any of those other ones I was talking about. Like, is that actually a generic trademark at this point? Can anyone use it? Technically, no. You cannot market anything as Xerox unless you are the company Xerox. Uh, and while you might call something a Xerox or you might refer to Xeroxing a document, that is not technically correct. Uh, and of course, that's the most important type of correct. We all live on the internet. We know that to be technically correct means that you win. Well, that wraps up the story of Xerox so far anyway. Like I said, pretty dramatic. You look at the, the humble beginnings of a tiny little company that was existing in the shadow of Kodak to the Xerox Park days where incredible R&D work was going on that would shape our use of computers in the future. And yet the company was very much unable to capitalize on it. 
all the way up to the modern day where the company has recently split apart and people are still kind of wondering what's going to happen to it. And we'll keep our eyes on it. Maybe someday it will warrant a part four, a, a, a kind of a, a catching up on what has happened so far. But until that day, we're going to put this one to bed. Guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, maybe there's a topic you've always wanted to know more about, whether it's a company or a person or a technology. Maybe there's someone you think I should interview or you have an idea of someone that you really want to have on as a guest host. I know that I, I'm going to get Scott Benjamin in here pretty soon to be a guest host on an episode of Tech Stuff. We're going to talk about some uh, personal submarines. That's the plan anyway. So we're going to chat about that in a future episode, not too long from now. But if there's anyone else that you think, hey, you need to get so-and-so in there, let me know. Send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. And remember, you can always watch me record these shows live at twitch.tv slash techstuff. I record on Wednesdays and Fridays. Just go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. You'll see the schedule there. You can join in, be part of the chat room, watch me as I brilliantly make my way through my notes or sometimes stumble over my own words to hilarious effect. And you get to experience all of that before Ramsey goes in and does his magic and removes all the goof-em-ups and keeps all the good stuff. So you get to see the whole thing. I hope to see you guys there. I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 